Kapla, it's time for Trek about. Yeah, it is. That's the all the Klingon I know. Okay, good. I um, don't even know what it means. It means like success or something. Oh, so, so yata. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, Soldiers of the Empire. I liked it. Yeah, no, I actually really like this episode, and I think that you know, I remember a while ago when I said that I don't like Klingon episodes, mm-hmm. but I like what Deep Space Nine does with them. Yeah, this, this is what I like about how the show handles Klingons. What I really, yeah, one of the major things about this episode is the way it. This this episode is all about Klingon promotion in a lot of ways. Uh, We've known for a while that Klingons, you get promoted by killing your superior officer. And at the very beginning of the – and, you know, we've seen seen that happen, but – at the very beginning, it's it's O'Brien who you yeah. know, basically talks about how chaotic that sounds like if everybody's plotting and trying to – it sounds horrible. But then – Well, Kira says that actually. Kira – oh, sorry. My, my mistake. Wow. Um, way to other the females. No way to think that Kira is as important as a white heterosexual man. Oh, yes. I did a feminist act. Okay. Um you know, D- D- Dax, Dax then basically says it's not as chaotic as all, yeah. all of that. And we see in this episode, it is true. There is – you get the sense nobody challenges their senior officer unless, number one, there are a lot of very – you know, they give Martok a ton of chances in sure. this episode. They really don't like – they seem very regretful about it. You know, Worf especially uh, is – it's not a decision that's made lightly in it. And nobody kind of really wants a shipwide mutiny. I think that even they want things to change, they want things to be better, certainly, but they also know that they have to do some pretty severe things in order to get to that. It's not done, you know, as blithely as it seems, you know, to be. And frankly, there is that other line that Dax says, which you know, Klingons are like anyone else. There's some strong ones and some weak ones. We see some, which I feel like that line was perhaps a bit on the nose. Of course, but and I, what I also think is interesting is that for the for most of this episode, we think we are seeing weak Klingons, but it turns out we are just seeing utterly demoralized Klingons. And I think it's very. I really like that this episode is not about how do we. How do we stop Martok? How do we, you know, do this? But about how do we, how do we get morale back to these, yeah. to these people who really just need a big shot in the arm in order to actually do something? Yeah, I agree with that, and I think that, that one of the reasons why I like this episode so much is that it gives each Klingon the opportunity to have their own personality, yeah, to have their own individual personality. I think they also do a good job of having individuals, but within a certain culture. I mean, they they are. As different as they are, they are all still Klingon. Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely, and that's the the smart thing about the episode. It's an episode. They're all, yeah, they're all they're all you know in the same situation. They're all looking at the same situation, and they're all reacting to it in a Klingon way. But they're all reacting to it in their own individual fashion. Yes, you know, and that's one of the things that you know. I mean, I think that's primarily why I don't like the Klingons in the Next Generation because yeah. you know the Next Generation was definitely a show that that gave respect to all of the alien cultures that they encountered in the seven seasons that the show was on, but they were monoliths for the most part. Yeah. And, the and aliens represent different one, philosophies or races yeah, or you know, one, nationalities one or whatever. was fairly indistinct from the next and you could kind of swamp them in and out. Whereas it's definitely not true on deep space nine. And I yeah. think that, you know, especially, I mean, I want to talk about Martok because, he is a really interesting character to me for a variety of reasons, but 
you know, this is really only the second time that we have seen the real Martok. And he's able to play a Klingon that is very cautious in a way that Klingons usually aren't. But he is also using that cautiousness in a way to hide the fact that he yeah. is not scared necessarily. No, I think he is frightened. But he was kept as a prisoner of war for an you know months in you know not knowing well he got home while a duplicate of him you know ravaged his people. I can very much appreciate why he would have a lot of trepidation about going into battle against one, even if they kind of figured they'd be able to win it because he's not looking to go through that again. Yeah, and I think it's very smart on the episode's part to start out with Martok, you know, being ministered by Dr. Bashir. You know, it establishes him as a character that is trying to get his groove back, uh, you know, in, in a certain yeah. way. And he's obviously, you know, he's lying to Bashir, saying that it was a holodeck program, even though it wasn't, you know, it was, it was Worf that did it to him. And, you know, Worf is a character that is interesting, especially in, in light of Martok joining the, not the cast, but he's on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. You know, it it's... It's able to give that relationship some sort of external life in in dialogue and in just appearances by Martok that we can say, okay, well, Worf and Martok are turning together. Yeah, they're sort of they have this this you know familial collegial relationship that is growing closer, even though yeah. we haven't seen it happen. But the, you know, the two and, of them saved each other's lives essentially, and they are acting like. I mean, I really like the way that Martok carries himself because he. He's one of the very few Klingons who hasn't given a shit about Worf's status or who his father is or any of that or what any of that matters. All he gives a shit about is Worf's behavior, and to him, Worf has always acted honorably, has always acted like a warrior should. And so he's able to really cut through all of the bullshit, and you know he sees Worf for who he is, and he appreciates that. Um, and and one of the reasons for that, and this is not really a spoiler, is that you know I I don't know if this is actually in the novels or if this is established hmm. on the show, but. Um, you know, Martok is supposed to be a Klingon that is more of a working class Klingon okay. in a way. And so he's not really wrapped up in notions of like Klingon nobility. So he's somebody who joined the army and worked his way up through and through bravery right. and, you know, distinguished himself and became this high ranking general rather than somebody who was, you know, just a member whose family was on the high council. I, exactly. Kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah. That actually does make a lot of sense for him. Yeah. And so that's, it's a very different Klingon than we've seen before. Yeah. I, and I think that that I like the relationship that is developing between him and Worf. I think that, you know, grounding it as it does in the beginning of the episode and then having Martok get this mission and having Martok ask Worf to go with him is, you know, and, and, and Worf is, I think Worf is interesting in this episode because he's painted out to be a little weak, but he's not being weak. Well, I think he's trying to protect Martok in a way, but he's, Dax recognizes that the situation is much more explosive than Worf or Martok do, and that Worf's trying to minister to Martok and get him maybe to do something is not going to work. Yeah. That Worf, I, Worf actually, I think, in a way, is more used to a, a Starfleet way of doing things than, yeah. than perhaps he's comfortable admitting. Well, I think it's very funny that it's Dax who's able to, number one, she makes friends among the crew, you know, fairly quickly. and Bringing blood wine's always a good way to it, it, make friends with Klingons. But that's it. She knows exactly how to make, you know, friends with these people. Obviously, she has served on... She. It, it, it's funny that she ends up having, you know, she has more experience as Curzon on Klingon ships than Worf does, but yeah. she's able to... 
number one, recognize how to get along well on the ship and how to recognize that things are about to go south very much. And I mean, there is that one line when she basically says to him that you're not on a Federation ship. You're on a Klingon ship. You can't act like you're on a Federation ship. You need to, which is on the one hand, a funny line, but also given that you know, give where we've seen Worf recently. Worf recently has recommitted himself to the Federation. Yeah. So it is almost natural that he is going to be yeah, acting I mean, very Federation in this case. Like two years ago, he was thinking about leaving Starfleet. Yeah. yeah, I think, well, you know, Worf, we haven't talked a lot about Worf's journey, I think, and it, it becomes relevant in this episode especially because, you know, Worf is a character that started out in a particular way on The Next Generation. He started out as a very, very sort of... um just a, just an example of the ways in which the next generation was going to be different from yeah. the original series. Oh, it's a Klingon on the bridge. Oh, my God. What's happening? And then, of course, as the show progressed and we get things like the Klingon Civil War arc and we get him having to deal with the fact that, uh, you know, in Sins of the Father and Redemption and those kinds of episodes that Klingon culture, Klingon politics, Klingon society is a lot more backstabby, is a lot less honor bound than he perhaps thought it was the scales are falling from his eyes a bit and then of course what happens in the fourth season with him actually being you know his house being dissolved by by galron you know by by having this sort of betrayal on on galron's part really especially since you know picard and Worf helped galron become the the chancellor of the klingon empire that he i think he feels like he is cut off from his own people in a way that he never has been before and you know he leaps at the chance to be among klingons again you know he still desires that contact yeah. and he still desires that but he hasn't really been around a lot of klingons in a while and you know i think that he is not realizing exactly how starfleet he has become yeah. which is an indication to me that Dax is there there that puts their relationship, I well, think, in yeah. a different light too. I mean, it does make sense that Dax is more able to one thing we've always known about Dax and particularly Jadzia is that she is willing to throw herself one hundred percent into a situation. I think there is a degree of not quite cockiness to her, but she knows that she's lived for five hundred years, and you know it's she's not, she's going to get through this one too. She's yeah. not going to be intimidated by any of these Klingons, or she's, even something simple as you know. Again, we've seen her kind of be willing to jump into relationships because yeah, you know, all right. So set, you know, if I'm with this person for fifty years, that's not that long. You know, it's practically a summer fling for her at this point. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, I mean, due to her very nature of her species as a conjoined trill, I mean, it does make sense that she's able to kind of shift herself into a different mindset very easily. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget that that you know, uh, uh, um, um, Curzon was yeah. you know the Klingon well, the Federation ambassador to, to Kurtos or something for a number of years and has a lot of experience with them. I mean, is, you know, Dax it, is able to you know whip off Bon Mots and whip off rejoinders to the to the Klingons that are going to get the kind of response the Klingons would appreciate. It it is elevating her yeah, in the eyes of of all the other Klingons. Let's not forget that when she introduces herself, everybody knows who Curzon was, mm-hmm. and you know they're they're kind of. He's a, you know, she is an embodiment of a living legend, you know, even if they're, yeah. And I think in a way, too, that it's, I think it's interesting that, her, you know, she, the Dax symbiont, not Jadzia specifically, yeah. but the Dax symbiont has more real world and more sustained and lengthy experience 
with Klingons than Worf does. You know, Worf actually hasn't spent that much time yeah. with other Klingons. No, he's raised by humans. He works with humans. He largely, he, yeah. And, you know, Martok is, and that's one of, one of the things I like about this episode as well, is that it is still very expansive in that Star Trek way because, of course, Dax is not Klingon, but she's able to recognize a dangerous situation mm-hmm. and, and help resolve it in a way. You know, Martok is having his own internal struggles, and I like the fact that the episode doesn't deal with them too much because it is much more dramatically effective to externalize those through, you know, him running away from the Jem'Hadar, for example. Yeah. Worf is not able to identify these problems because he is preoccupied with trying to get Martok to do his Klingon duty. And Dax is the one who has the most experience with Klingons, the most experience with being on Klingon ships and Klingon society mm-hmm. and Klingon culture to recognize this for a very dangerous, mutinous situation. I think, just as a side note, I think it's really funny that, you know, Curzon was fascinating with Klingons and. Jadzia has a fascination with Ferengi. It almost seems like Dax is able to pick out what the trendy new species is going <laughs> to be. No, but it's true because he, you know, Curzon is with the Klingons right before they're kind of in the Federation. And now we're seeing the Ferengi nod. Well, they're not in the Federation. Well, we're having had having much better relations with them. And obviously part of it is his fostering of that. But Klingons are such an important part that, you know— and she sees, you know, Jadzia sees which way the wind is blowing with the Ferengi, you know, with people like Nog joining Starfleet now. Uh, yeah. With the way that Quark is becoming more Federation by the day. Uh, I, I, I think it's interesting that she knows where the next, you know, again, the, ne- the next popular species that's going to be important is going to be. I don't know that I would agree with the Ferengi are that important, but she could. If Dax wants to make the Ferengi be an important player in the galaxy, I don't think she could do it. <laughs> She's not Curzon. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I I don't know about that. I but, think that's probably a little too far afield for this. Hey, but uh, for our show, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what do you think about the resolution though? Because one of the things I liked it. Yeah, because. I thought it was very subtle how they do that because it's a callback to this thing at the beginning when uh, Worf is explaining to Cisco about, you know, there is, I don't remember what the term was, this moment essentially of insight between two warriors on the battlefield will be able yeah. to just be as in sync with each other just by looking at each other. They'll be able to tell what the other is thinking and be able to do. And that's exactly, we see that happening at the end when the two of them are struggling. The the show doesn't call any attention to it, but there is a very distinct look. And that is when Worf realizes all Bartok needs is just, if he beats me up, he'll get his confidence back. That'll inspire, you know, that's what needs to be done. The the answer isn't, we need to defeat Bartok and, you know, take his place. Because Worf very much wants Bartok to be in his proper place. He's Bartok. We we like him. We should be, you know commanding this these people who are on the ship who have had all these losing fights no they deserve to have a victory and Worf is able to give him that in a way which kind of makes everybody's happy and satisfies everybody's honor yeah because Worf is I mean I agree with that I mean Worf is one of those characters that I kind of half like and kind of half dislike you know he he definitely has a lot of problems and I think we've talked about that I think that the show especially um, TNG especially in the latter part of it, sort of, you know, his character went a little, uh, <laughs> went a little astray, let's say. And, and I think Deep Space Nine is, is using him in a, in a more interesting way and then, than TNG did a lot yeah. of the time. Well, and, again, they're taking Klingons in generally more seriously. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, you, you, you wouldn't be able to, and this is kind of the larger question about Deep Space Nine, of course, but you would not be able to have a Deep Space Nine without yes. the work that, that the next generation did. So it's not that I'm, I'm discounting no, TNG but at all. TNG but, was very good at introducing certain concepts and themes and ideas and species and all of that. And the Klingons were, I would say, a very good and detailed crew. Whether or not you like the Klingons or not, TNG, you have to admit, TNG did a very good job of sure. fleshing out what it meant to be Klingon, what the Klingons were. Yeah. And so they have that base on, and DS9, I mean, DS9 does this with a lot from TNG in general, which we've talked about a bunch, but it, it when it looks at the Klingons, it's able to see something insightful about, well, how exactly would Battlefield promotion work? Right. How exactly would this be in a way that would, because we've talked we talk sometimes about, well, would this be able to be a functioning society? Would this be able, you know, this would collapse in a, and there are a lot of bits about TNG's interpretation of Klingons that would collapse. This is looking at this aspect and saying, how do we make this actually work in real life? And okay. Or, I mean, I think what, yeah, I think that's true, but I think you have to take it deeper than that because instead of saying what TNG's interpretation of the Klingons is, Mm -hmm. I think you have to look at it and you have to say, what do the Klingons look like to an outsider? What yeah. do they look like to the Federation? What do they look like to Picard and the crew of the Enterprise? They look this particular way yes. because they don't have the nuance. They don't have the hmm. experience. They don't live in that culture. Whereas an episode like Soldiers of the Empire jettisons all of the non-Klingon characters except for Dax, who, of course, has had a lot of experience, yeah. understands Klingon culture very well through Curzon. And... The episode takes place almost entirely on the Rotaron, and it it is able to show through the Klingon characters by having no real non-Klingon character there except for Dax, who does have her experiences with them, what it is actually like. And I think that that's a really different take on that. I mean, the same thing happens with well, the Ferengi, like with Ferengi yeah. love songs, for example, where, you know, TNG never had a Ferengi character. There was no Ferengi episode that took place on Ferenginar, whereas that's what DS9 does. It shows what these cultures are like to the to the alien races that have to live in them. I mean, this is, in general, this is it. Yeah, we... we... So so maybe there is a degree to which they are about foreignness in different ways. And, you know, TNG is about seeing foreignness and accepting it as still having dignity and value and all of that, which is, a, which is an excellent theme. TNG, you mean? Yes. What did I say? I think you said DS9. Oh, well, TNG, I meant. Yeah. Um, DS9, though, is taking that from a... I mean, there is a degree to which TNG kind of thinks all Klingons look the same because it hasn't hasn't really lived among them enough to be able to spot the differences. DS9 is about people who are from that culture and who do understand it and who can see these people as individuals. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, Which is a further development of the theme and next stage of that theme that all these people – you know, have dignity and all of that. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say it in a character like the differences between Goldicott and Garrett. Yeah, Car- there's a, it, there's it a lot did something of... with Cardassians, with Trill, with, again, in general, that's what it's trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I think that, that the other thing to talk about, maybe before I wrap this one up, is the end of the episode, which, you know, see, it's very, it's played kind of 
discreetly, but I think it's kind of important. Where Worf gets adopted by yeah. Martok? Yeah. yeah, essentially. I mean, well, that's what happens. Well, I mean, the, similar fate to what happened to his brother, who, you know, obviously there was a little more going on, but at this point, you know... Yeah, Worf still remembers that he's Worf. <laughs> yeah, but at the point, the sons of Moog have become sons of other people now, and... There is a sadness to that because you know I I I didn't re I didn't think that Worf was going to completely take off the Moog crest. I thought he was going to, you know, put the Martok crest you know next to it. And you know, I was born in this house, but I now belong to this house right. kind of a thing. But he totally replaces it, which I thought was an interesting thing. Well, I mean, if there's one thing that I think we can say that has been definitively established about Worf's character is that uh, when he has no use for family, they're dead to him. Well, we talked – yeah, we talked about this in – about Klingons in general. You seem to think of people in your house as assets rather than people you love or show loyalty. But at the same time, Martok uh, essentially adopting Worf as a brother is – it is a is is a statement of love and loyalty and sure. recognition. Again, sure. the two of them have now gone to two extraordinarily uh, intense things and had deep impacts on each other's lives. So, you know, and it does make sense that they have now become this close. And it's nice of I like it. And I think it's nice that the the relationship is able to grow and change. And it's yeah. also, I mean, they do a good job of establishing this relationship, really, only in this episode. Yeah. And, you know, it, it doesn't feel unearned that well, again, Martok you, wants Worf to become part of his house. But again, knowing what you know, we did see the two of them, you know, escaping the prison camp together and dealing with that, again, you can certainly appreciate that that would create a bond between two people. And this is the event which cements that. And also, of course, the fact that Martok is able to trust Worf because yeah. Worf had this plan all along, well, not all along, but towards the end of the episode to fight Martok not to actually take over the ship, but to get Martok to realize that he needed to fight to, back. To, yeah. yeah, to fight back. Yeah, yeah. And then I think also, you know, Martok also appreciates the fact that, you know, Worf had a great answer to his question. How did you know I wasn't going to kill you? And Worf said, <laughs> I didn't. You know, I think, but I think that again, because of that, they have that moment. I think Worf did know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it could be a moment of of definitely. I, 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 well, you know, to to be fair, you know, there is one to say we had an intimate moment on the battlefield. You almost get the sense you should not have intimate moments on the battlefield. <laughs> that's you, a bad place for those. You get to uh, well, that's that's the entire point of Metal Gear Solid. But um, I'll take your word. For it. <laughs> You get to sense that almost this moment of understanding or clarity or whatever it is is something that they don't really talk about. Like I, I don't think they would sit down and hash it. And so it's almost him saying I didn't is almost kind of alighting that conversation Yeah, in yeah, some ways. I think so. I mean, we didn't really talk a lot about the other Klingon characters. You know, I think that, I mean, we're kind of giving them short shrift, but, you know, frankly, they're... They're, they're one-shot characters, yeah, really. Yeah, I did love the Navigator, though. I think he was my favorite Klingon ever. <laughs> <laughs> I am sorry. <laughs> poor, excuse this old Klingon's <laughs> poor hearing. <laughs> oh, sarcastic Klingons are the best. Yeah. Let's talk about Children of Time. This was, this was an episode... Yeah, you don't seem to like it very much. Um, I do and I don't, and this is an episode which I'm – I guess one of the things 
I want to talk about this episode as a response to TNG. Both of these seem like they're responses to the next generation in general, yeah. if not to a particular episode. But I want to talk about a little about The Defiant because The Defiant has allowed this show to do more TNG-style storylines instead of— Which they don't even do that much, really. No, they don't. And you know, it is true they use it fairly sparingly. Um, and I believe—and this isn't really a big spoiler, but I, I believe that this is the last time that they go to the Gamma Quadrant okay. in the show ever— Good. So, okay, I didn't quite click that this was the Gamma Quadrant, actually. Yeah, but, they said in the beginning that okay. they were on some sort of reconnaissance mission, so... Anyway. Uh, they have to justify it somehow. Yeah, of course, and it does make more sense that they're going to be on, you know, undiscovered planets in the Gamma Quadrant rather than in their neighborhood, but... Yeah. Um, I wanted to like this episode a lot, and there was a lot I did like about it, and... But at the same time, I don't know. I felt like it needed a little salt. If you know what I mean, I don't think I do. Like there, it, it was, it had all the ingredients, but it just needed something. There, I don't know. I I like this episode a lot, actually, and I think that one of the reasons why I like it is that it is very different from what a lot of DS Nine does. Yeah, you know, it is kind of a, you know, it is kind of a, a TNG style story, but I I like those. I like TNG, yeah, and, and I, I like... think that it does a good job at doing a different take on that on doing a deep space nine version of this on having an ending that would yeah. not happen on tng yeah and i guess maybe maybe we should talk about the ending first because that seems sure. to me i mean because they do end it with this moment where you know the colony disappears and they you know they do get through it and the autopilot was turned on and they speculated that it was the colony leader and that he yeah. decided to and TNG would have ended it there. They would have probably had the conversation with Odo and Kira maybe, but you know, certainly that's all that would have happened. It would have been about, about this leader who decides that, you know, no, we can self-sacrifice. Right. We can make right. And that it ends with Odo having done having just made this choice for everybody else in a way which is very unsettling. And it is that's because... where DS9 comes in. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, yeah, I I think that the o the version of Odo that we see in this episode is, and of course, you know, we we don't see both versions of Odo most through most of the episode. I think just because it would have been very difficult and time consuming oh. to have Rodeo version of Wall do two versions of the makeup, so they kind of shunt the pre uh, the present day Odo off to the side for the most most of the episode, which I think was a good choice. Well, also because let's face it, if present day Odo were around, he would that would complicate the then then the show would be about the conflict between past Dodo and present Dodo to a degree. Yeah. It makes it's it's more frankly tragic and shocking for everybody that Odo ends up knowing all of this but is utterly powerless to do anything about it. But it does make the the future Odo or whatever you want to call him um it it kind of puts into stark contrast exactly I think how much of a black box Odo really is and and how much of his motivations are mm. unknown. Yeah. What his internal life is really like. I mean, he doesn't seem to really have a lot. I mean, we don't see him interacting with anybody else in the colony. We don't know yeah. what he does on a day to day basis. I mean, I don't know. Does he just sit around and look at birds? I, I don't know what he does. He's not, and, he, you know, obviously, maybe he would have started off doing security kind of things or we're going to worry about the defenses, but everything seems fairly peaceable that. You and know, I mean, he too, would have less to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it also what what I think is really 
unspoken in this episode is the fact that Oda would be a profoundly changed person by this experience. Of course. You know, he is he was someone who was watching all of his friends and the people he'd known all his life dying. You At know? this point, and, he is almost a revered elder, maybe, because he's somebody from the original crash. I mean, he's like a great, 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 he's, great. He's probably less of a real person to a lot of them. Yeah. Than some sort of figurehead, right? And, and, and also the fact that he fixates on Kira makes a lot of sense because yeah. he's cut off from his people. He's not able to, 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 um, to link with anybody on this planet. And he is kind of really, really alone at this point. And yeah. he is kind of latching on to the one person who died prematurely who he feels the most connection to yeah. after after everyone else has already gone. I like how they angle him, though, because there is a degree to— Yeah, I did like his face in this episode. <laughs> there is a degree to which he is a little creepy here. He's very he, creepy. But at the same time... I, I Every time I watch this episode when he first appears, I'm like, what is he going to do? Yeah. Like, I know what he's going to do, but it's just like, what is he going to do? Yeah. And, w- w- you know, he asks her on this date and, you know, she is a little... you know, On the one hand, yeah, it is a little disturbing. On the other hand, it does make complete sense why he would be like this. And we can... You know, he's not going to do anything to hurt Kira or anything no, no, like no. that. You know, that's not where the worry comes from. But at the same time, you know, he is... You know, you do feel bad. He is a dra- he is a man in the desert who and and here is a drop of water finally. So yeah, he's going to, you know, here is somebody he can act feels like he can actually talk to, you know, and all of those things and you know, I mean, this is really the literal embodiment of of a past that was two centuries yeah. ago for him, you know. And yes, they all knew that this was going to happen. Right, mm-hmm. because they all they all knew that they well, were going to come maybe back. What I I I mean, maybe he really was just staring at birds, waiting for this day. I mean, you get the sense after a while. I mean, what does especially that... after all of his original group of friends die? Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a highfalutin question, but then again, this is track about, so it's what we do. Is you know, what does time mean to Oda? Mm. I mean, he is essentially immortal. He can die. We know Kling- Klingons. We know changelings can die, yeah. but. If if nothing happens to him, if he's not murdered or doesn't have some horrible We know they accident. at least have a few hundred years till anything happens, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, what exactly uh, was he doing all this time? What was he What was he dealing with? It's very, very, you know, you could just see him kind of leaving and going off for 50 years and yeah. not doing anything, yeah. really, and just being by himself. Going, wandering around the planet just to see what's on it. And also it does, I mean, it gives it a very tragic, I mean, one of the reasons I like this episode so much, and we'll talk about all the other stuff in it, of course, mm-hmm. but I think that it grounds it in the reality of the characters in a way that is really, really smart. And, you know, Odo is very he's a very different character. He seems very more more at peace with himself, with his yeah. nature. He seems very sort of open emotionally in a way that, that he's our, a little more our of a Odo is now. not. Yeah. But he also has been fixating on a person mm-hmm. who's been dead for two hundred years. And what would that do to you? Yeah. And kind of knowing that she was going to come back. And what does that do to your mental state? And I like how Kira reacts to it because she is very mixed about this. Number one she is not at all in a place to think romantically because let's face it, she's, you know, they're in this crisis. She heard that a version of herself died. This is somebody she's never thought about romantically. And also, let's pour one out for the fact that she and Shakar broke off off screen. I don't think she's that that upset about it. Like, you know, when, when she says, "Oh, we broke up," I mean, I have expected to say someone say, "Oh, you were still going out." Like, and she doesn't. 
you know, she seems a little bummed about it, certainly, but, you know, she's not exactly crying all weekend. Right. Um, but yeah, you can see her not really wanting to deal with this, but at the same time, this is a friend of our, hers. And yeah. It, you know, she knows that he's somebody who hasn't seen her, and she's not exactly completely against the idea of the possibilities of romance with Odo. It's just never really entered her mind, and she's just... There are a lot of things in her head that she's that you know get in line. You know, there's a lot of things I got to process right. first. And and interestingly enough, uh, this episode I believe was first pitched for like the third or fourth season. Okay. And this whole idea of Kira and Odo having this or Odo having this secret love for Kira was something that had come about in the pitch from an outside writer. But had not been established in the okay. show. And then, of course, once they did this, it turns out, of course, that in Heart of Stone and some other episodes, especially in um, yeah. the episode from, from the fourth season, whose name is escaping me, um, the, 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 the bodyguard riff with – maybe was it called Shakar? It might have been called Shakar. I think so. Um, yes. That Odo has actually, you know, it has been revealed that Odo is sort of secretly in love with Kira. I think it's good that they were able to stretch that out for a little while. Whether, you know, whether or not I thought, you know, maybe they stretched it out a little long and maybe it was a little too so proper. But at the same time, it, it, there have been several things on this show that I've said I wish we would have seen Eddington once or twice more. Yeah. Um, or something like that. I like that they've, you know, it hasn't been the cornerstone of Odo's character, but it has been mentioned enough times that this feels like a payoff for something they've been planning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, move, moving aside from the Kirinoto stuff, I, I, I think that the, the other really smart choice that the episode makes is having the character of Yedrindax, who is kind of the, the yeah. leader or something of, the, of, this, of this village, is... You know, he's lying to them, you know, he's, yeah. <laughs> which is something that I don't necessarily know what happened on TNG either. I think that in, in a version of this episode on TNG, the plan would have worked and everything would have been fine. Yeah. But the, the, the tension would have the dramatic tension would have had to come from somewhere else if this was a TNG episode. But what I like about it is that, you know, Dax realizes that his plan is actually not going to work and that he is hiding something and he's falsified uh, uh, records, essentially. And she confronts him. She's very upset. She says, look, I don't know who you are. And the show does this really smart thing where Yedrin says, you know, this was my fault yeah. that this happened. And I'm trying to make sure that that wasn't for, for nothing, mm-hmm. essentially, which I think is a really, really powerful, dramatic moment yeah. for the episode and really goes a long way towards it has, it, you know, it's characters that are having conflict with themselves, essentially. Well, you know, this this. The episode begins with Kira talking about, um, you know, Kira and Dax have this little disagreement where, you know, Kira's saying, I believe, you know, the prophets have a path laid out for us. And, yeah. you know, they, they the prophets already have already picked your, you know, your soulmate. And Dax is saying now, no, I think anybody can make it work. You just need, you know, there is no one, which number one does reflect their personalities, reflects where they are in life in a way you almost get the sense that Kira is a little relieved that Shakar is not her soulmate because, you know, it it doesn't seem like it's been the most fulfilling relationship for her. And Dax is obviously talking about wanting to make it work with, you know, Worf at this point. Um, and all of these people get to see an alternate path. Yeah. And whether or not that's fulfilling. And I think it is interesting seeing the results of their actions from a different universe. 
Yeah, I think because what's really powerful about that scene is that Dax turns on a dime, essentially, and goes from being extremely angry at Yedrin Dax to to completely understanding and being yeah. sympathetic, you know, immediately because she does realize that because she's been feeling guilty well, about this, too. And put it this she way, is da- the, yeah, Dax she is, is the able- one that that was like, oh, we can do this. It'll be easy. Maybe we'll find smart fungus, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and it turns out that this was a terrible thing to do. And this was a mistake. And she wasn't as careful as she should be. Mm-hmm. And I think that she she sympathizes with Yedrin to a large degree. Well, Dax is able to explain his own motivations to herself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then I think Cisco kind of is is swayed by these arguments too yeah. in a way well i love how they have suddenly they all go for planting and it's obviously this massive guilt trip they're playing on everybody but well it is and it isn't i, I mean, mean I, they need to show the to a degree it's them showing what will be lost and the sense of community but to another degree it does it reminds me a little bit about the inner light in that um and and that is where cisco kind of leaves the episode i frankly don't think that Kira and Odo are going to tell Cisco about what happened, that it was Odo, you know, future Odo's doing at the end. I think Cisco leaves this episode thinking that— Oh, I think she's going to tell him. Are I don't you know. kidding me? I don't know. Oh, I think she will. Well, um— There's no way she's going to keep that from Cisco. I don't know, because we're Cisco—but, le- yeah, either way, Cisco leaves this episode with the last we see Cisco in this episode, uh, believing that Yedrin has— made this decision for the you know the colony and has frankly there is the sense that Yedrin has the right to make this decision and Odo does not um maybe by well maybe by simple virtue of being leader well especially since Odo's decision was essentially not well kind of selfish but but selfish in a very kind of selfless in a very selfish way well it's if that's possible this is a typical star trek the needs of the many and the needs of the few and which i think is interesting that this episode kind of goes a long way towards not saying that yeah well they well they're not sure who the many and the few are i think in some ways yeah i think during the beginning of the episode they're thinking of the many as the people on deep space nine you know everybody in the federation if we're not here we're going to you know the people we are leaving behind for these few people this one tiny colony that nobody knows exists yeah. and later on the end they're realizing that no the many is actually these three thousand people on the colony the eight thousand eight thousand people on the colony the few is the four the 50 people on the ship yeah it's a recon- well, and at the end odo is saying no the needs of the few kira matter more than the needs of the many, which is anybody else. I don't think he even makes that calculation. It's I don't fair. think he thinks about that at all. And I, and, and frankly, I don't know that Odo really thinks that these people are real to a certain That's degree. Fair. He may have had this in, on his mind for 200 years. We yeah. don't know. Well, espe- again, especially you can see once Cisco and once everybody of the original 50 dies and then maybe a few people that he has met in between, yeah. he's not really have any ties there. Right, exactly. Because I think that the, the what, what this episode makes me think of to some degree is that line, I believe it's in Tapestry, where Q tells Picard, you know, the Federation's not going to collapse. Yes. You know, frankly, you're not that important. And... They don't come right out and say that in this episode, but they get pretty close to it. Yeah. Where they're kind of like, look, you know, you guys already disappeared and nothing happened. Yeah. Essentially. You know, so you, the Federation's going to be okay without you. Yeah. You're not necessarily needed. You're to, the main characters of the show, but not of the franchise. Yeah. And I think, well, not even that. I mean, because I think Picard is a very important character to the Star Trek franchise, but. It's and of course it's Q, so who knows? But in this episode, it's it's more of a grounded reality where 
you know, these are people that, again, there's another Star Trek show. There was another one on the air already. Yeah. So it's like these is one. this is one crew of four at this point that has been in existence. It's not like if they disappear, it's going to be the end of the world. The story will still continue, yeah. Now, of course, we know that that's not actually going to be how the episode ends because, you know, the final two seasons of Deep Space Nine yeah. were not going to be them on this planet, you know, but forming that a colony. Really weird choice. It would have been, wouldn't it? <laughs> It would have harkened back to the original conception of Deep Space Nine as taking place on, on a planet, actually. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk about... Um, there's a lot of characters in here that I want to talk about. I think that, that you know, obviously Cisco, Dax, Kiranoto kind of take up the most screen time. Yeah. And Yedrin, of course. But, you know, O'Brien gets a chance to shine. Um, Bashir gets a little bit of a chance to shine. Worf gets I a chance really to like shine. I really like Worf in this episode. Well, I... <laughs> I think isn't... I like Worf in this episode a lot. I also like the fact that I forgot this line existed, but there's that great line. You know, O'Brien is obviously someone who's very uncomfortable with this. He's someone who, yeah. you know, he didn't go to the academy. He didn't take temporal mechanics. <laughs> he's just a, he's a working stiff who got in a position of power due to his, you know, hard work and, and smarts. And he's uncomfortable with all of this sort of like Star Trek sci-fi bullshit to a large degree. Yeah. And he doesn't want to deal with this. He well, and he think- also largely feels like uh, to a degree he's basically dealing with, okay, your wife's dead. Are you going to remarry? And because obviously he is still in the mindset for obvious reasons of – He just I, had a baby. Yeah. I'm married to this woman. I left her a couple days ago and I'm going to come back in two days and I have my family – which, and as we know, O'Brien's family is very important. Sure. He likes to be able to get home every night. And, you know, and he's been told that, you know, this is tantamount to being told that he's going to betray his family. Yeah. And that's really what he's. And I think that what would really, what I really love about that scene, especially where they're, they're all talking about staying and, you know, Cisco, um, I think Kira says, are we actually entertaining this? And yeah. you know, Cisco takes a pause and says, no, we're not. <laughs> but where Worf is kind of on the side of we should actually stay. We can't wipe these people out. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Yeah. It's very near and dear I to yours. I think I wrote it down. That, you know, O'Brien's, O'Brien actually says, uh, you know, that's easy for you to say, Worf. You hardly ever see your son. <laughs> and I love how Worf comes back with, yeah, well, you're not. You're afraid to face your destiny, man. And it's like so lame. But yeah, fucking good on you. You know, this who, whoever wrote this episode has been waiting to have O'Brien call Worf out and found the perfect opportunity. It is like I like the fact that O'Brien is does has no fucks to give. Is telling Worf to his face I that mean, he's a shitty father. I mean, put it this way. I mean, and only O'Brien can do it because, number one, O'Brien is a great father. O'Brien knows exactly that it's, you know, yes, it may be difficult to balance a family in Starfleet, but I'm fucking proof you can do it. Yeah. So, you know, Worf, you have no excuses. And, you know, he's also probably the only one who's met Alexander, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody else on this ship has ever seen seen him and maybe barely even know you know do i mean you think this, kira really knows about alexander i mean she may not even know he exists i mean i'm sure dax knows he exists yeah. and i'm sure that maybe dax has talked to kira about it but it's the kind of thing where it's just mentioned like you know you you one of my co-workers has a kid and you know one one another guy was working was like i always forget that she does oh yeah yeah you know like that's how it probably is to Worf. oh yeah i forgot he had a kid 
but I think that really does speak to to how Deep Space Nine is is able and willing to to go places like that. Yeah, to really sort of have a little bit of of tension amongst the crew that yeah. that TNG would not do, and also the fact that they're able to disagree. I mean, Cisco is is making the decision for them. Yes. but you know he does come around to it. I think that you know at the end of the day. Uh, it, if Children of Time is not, you know, sort of a, a wonderful episode of the show, no, I think it is. Good. It's good. I think it. I like it. And I think that, you know, Deep Space Nine, certainly we talked about this a couple weeks ago where a lot of the episodes are not really sci-fi plots at all. They could take place on yeah. any type of television show. And this is certainly not an episode of television that could take place on any oh, other type of television fiction. show. Sure. Uh, but it is... You know, I I just I like these type of stories. I like these type of Star Trek stories and I like how they come across with a different sort of spin on it that works and also makes it really a part of the storytelling vehicle that that Deep Space Nine has has really developed over these five years. I really like just go back to war for a second. What they do with Klingons becoming more of a. They're like a philosophy. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it, it's it's a lifestyle in a way. Of, I mean, they have the, you know, blondest, bluest-eyed-looking kid who hopes to join them. And as far as we know, you know, he's going... Gee Willikers, Worf, I really want to be a Klingon <laughs> someday. <laughs> you know, and obviously, you know, the Klingons know who he is. You know, the one's like, well, when it's, you know, when you're old enough, you know, you can try. And, you know, he's probably... You know, I, I think about when they talk about Kira as a teenager hanging out outside the Shakar. That's kind of what this kid is like to the Klingons. But, yeah, I do like how it ended up becoming just a, a way of life that anybody can join if they're worthy of it. Yeah, and of course, you know, Worf is highly excited by this. <laughs> because if there's anything Worf likes, it's having his ego stroked. No, I, I, I think Worf becoming some kind of preacher, teacher, philosopher type does make a lot of sense for what he will do in his later years. The one question I well yeah, I like that stuff a lot. The one question I do have about I mean and and especially too where Worf, you know, says I will come to you and kill yeah. you and then of course he says, "Look, time is their enemy. We should help them defeat it." Yeah. It's all very nice and Star Trekky and warm and fuzzy. But uh well what, you know, he found he found a way for them to have a warrior's death in a lot of ways. Go back to yeah. what he did with Martok. He realized the goal isn't to kill them but to give them a way of going out that they have you know, and so they vanquish this enemy of time and then they disappear. From yeah. It. Like that's a warrior's death. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that um, it, it is a nice way for the show to do a different type of story that mm. is very, very, um, you know, it's emotionally resonant for the whole yeah. thing. Oh, and, yeah. and, you know, at the end of the day, though, I think that, that one of the things that um, is most weird about the episode is how everyone just kind of takes it in stride that they're here. Yeah. Like, I guess they all knew they were going to well, show they, up. Well, you know, because but... they know the history. You know, they know in there's we time loop. I mean, I do feel like they're telling them a little too much. I well, mean, that, was of, my, yeah. that was my question is like, you know, if they actually, if, if Odo had not changed the autopilot and if they had been thrown back in time too many yeah. years. Like, how could you, how could you, like, organically create the same society yeah, by like, knowing all of this stuff? You know, O'Brien is either going to completely ignore this woman Tannenbaum or you know you have Bashir who finds out the name of the woman he married and he says oh I've never even spoken to her she just transferred in but you know obviously he's he would talk to her you know maybe even earlier than he would have originally yeah and you know he he jokes about how when we get out of this I'm going to introduce myself because uh, we must have something in common well I guess enjoy this episode because this is 
well, this isn't the last Star Trek episode that the show does, but it's definitely the last one that's kind of like, hey, we found this planet. Let's, yeah. oh, look at this. There's weird things happening. So, the rest any... is about the Dominion attacking DS9. No, that doesn't happen. The rest is about DS9 attacking the Dominion. That doesn't happen either. <laughs> the Dominion attacks the wormhole, who attacks Kronos, who attacks DS9, who attacks the Cardassians, who attack the wormhole. Stop reading Memory Alpha. I just have such trouble understanding that site. Well, if you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at trackaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash trackaboutshow if you enjoy our podcast and would like to give us a little bit of monetary support. Uh, We released the August patron special for those patrons that give us $5 a month or more about three weeks ago on the Star Trek 25th anniversary adventure game, which I think was quite fun-ish. We're on social media, Truck About Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review for Truck About. And also listen to our other podcast, Tuning In. <gasps> episode 6 is being released in two days, and we're going to be talking about the Firefly episode, Our Mrs. Reynolds, which features an actress who became very big about 10 years later. Are you talking about her boobs? No, I'm talking about her performance and her celebrity. And also her boobs. <laughs> well, next week, oh God, we're almost at the end of the fifth season. Oh my God, this is crazy! I mean, this is really crazy. Like when we got to Deep Space Nine, I was very excited. I was like, "Wow, we're going to do this for a year and a half. It's going to be great." And it's yeah. like it's not almost over because we still have two seasons and a couple episodes, but it's really flying by. Yeah. So it's so sad. Good for us. Good for us. Why? Because we're watching TV. Oh yeah. I like watching TV. So why we're doing tuning in. We're going to be talking about Blaze of Glory, which is not about smoking pot, believe it or not. And uh Empoch Nor, which is about Empocking. I love a good Empochinata.